0: Not sure where you were in 1995. Can you think back? Some of you might, some of you might not have been born. But it was mid November 1995, the evening of my final recital, the end of my music degree um, at the Con, Scott Theatre, Adelaide University the jazz cats tended to sort of be less concerned with being associated with the con than some of the classical students. It was sort of prestigious on that end of the the campus. But this was the icing on the cake for someone who'd done three years. It was like my rite of passage in the jazz world, Um, especially someone who had majored in education, not jazz performance. Uh, It was a rare event to be able to have a recital. But family and friends and some fellow jazz musicians and whoever else felt like it um, came along to watch and hear Uh, myself, and my hand-picked rhythm section to play for about 40 minutes as I hopefully passed and got through my degree, a range of jazz styles and tunes. And it went okay, as far as I could tell, at the time. Um, And I found out a week later I did pass, thank the Lord. Um, But after that final note was played, and after the applause had died down and I made my way backstage to pack up and then to the front to greet and thank those who had come to support me. As I got to the foyer, it was there I noticed my dad walking in from the other side, um, from the entry door, and I thought, oh, is he going out for a smoke? Chances are he probably had, or so I thought. But no, as I went to say hello to him, he said, is it finished already? He had missed it. At the time, it was one of the most important times of my life, occasions, And he'd just arrived. Late from work, maybe. Maybe it took him 45 minutes to get a park. Or maybe it just wasn't important enough to get there on time. I don't really know. Needless to say, I was disappointed. Devastated, probably closer to the truth. And even some time later, sitting down with him at home uh, with the old VCR, watching the recording, which I think Pete put on CD for me later on, that wasn't really much consolation, actually. It took me a long time in my own heart to forgive my dad for not being there that day. But I think what made that hurt all the more, particularly at that time in my life, was that deep down, and probably for most of my life, I'd looked for and longed for my dad's approval, his acceptance, his affection, his love he was a typical fella who didn't express that sort of stuff very much you realize as you grow up you become a bit more like them than you might like to too don't you my daughters have had to live with that but more than anything in the world i wanted him i wanted to hear him say well done good job i love you rather than how did it go Where would you go wrong? What could you do better next time? Or give me advice on how I should do better next time. I wanted to hear those words that Jesus heard from his father. This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And if we're honest, all of us, I think we all long to hear those words, don't we? From our earthly dads and mums. We want to know that we're accepted and loved and approved, not for what we can do or not do, not for what we achieve and succeed in, but just for who we are as their children, as a human being. No matter how well we perform or not, And behind that deep and desperate human longing for our earthly parents to express that love and affection is an even deeper need in all of us to actually know our Heavenly Father loves us and accepts us. That our sin and our guilty conscience and our resistance to believe the truth and the scriptures and the gospel actually keep us wondering Am I good enough? How could God love me? What if I do something to make him take his love away? It's a, we could say coincidence, I'd say God-incidence, that uh, Kedebi shared with us from Zephaniah, something he'd heard from Dominic Smart, because it's actually in this past week or two, I've been helped by Dominic Smart for this morning too. Praise the Lord. I don't know all of your stories, but I know some of you well enough, and some of your story to know that My desperate need for my father's love is not a unique one, is it? And my deep disappointment, actually, at that recital is not unique. If anything, for some of us, it's pretty trivial compared to what some of you have gone through with your dads or your mums. But it's not a competition, is it? It's the cry of every human heart to hear the father through our earthly fathers, through one another, through parents, whatever. But to hear God Himself say to us, "Well done, my beloved son, my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased." That be true. As Nat made mention last week, and I want us to notice it again today. I want us to see how the Father affirms His Son. I was meant to ask uh, Rebecca to, as my fault, um, to start a couple of verses earlier. We started in chapter 4 because that's where that finished at the end of chapter 3 last week. But the two go together. When Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But do you notice how that affirmation, that great declaration of Jesus' sonship and the God, the Father's love for him, his delight in his son, do you notice how he does that before Jesus has been tempted? Before he's done anything in his public life and ministry? It actually sets the scene and sets Christ's own security for what lays ahead for him. He hasn't done anything to prove himself worthy, to be a beloved son yet actually i think he has but as far as matthew's gospel go he's been baptized to fulfill all righteousness but the father doesn't wait to see how he goes He doesn't wait to see if jesus can really prove himself worthy or faithful and fit to be called his son or to see whether he really does give him good pleasure by how he succeeds and what he achieves no, he, does all, he affirms his son as his son, his beloved son, and declares his delight in his son before all of that takes place. In fact, I would go as far to say that both here for Jesus and for us in our own lives and family relationships, these words of love for his son and his delight actually put Jesus, and therefore should put us, in the best state of heart and mind to be able to face our days in this world and the temptations that we face. The security in Christ's sonship that he has here puts him in the best stead for what he's about to face. And I want to encourage us this morning that we too can be just as secure in our sonship in Christ so that we too can be secure when we face temptation, when we face the trials and troubles of this world and there 'd be a great harvest of thanksgiving to the Father. It's hard enough, isn't it, in this life to get through, to resist temptation and to go on living faithfully if we're not secure, or sorry, when we are secure in our sonship. How hard is it then if we're trying to prove to God that we are fit and worthy to be his sons at the same time? And whilst it's not the main point of the text this morning, I think it's a principle we can learn from this and one I need to apply and we all, I think, can learn from and apply in our own parenting, maybe our grandparenting. I'm still learning to apply. As I said, my daughters haven't always had the most loving, affectionate father either, who's affirmed them. I need to. But the affirmation for Jesus here comes first at the beginning of his ministry. Yes, it's repeated on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's established here, and it comes without qualification. There's no condition. It's not, this is my son whom I love, and if he does well, I'll be pleased with him. Got your ATAR, year 12s? Got your uni offers or not? No. It's not when he completes his task and it's all over, then I'll say that I'm pleased with him. No, it's not that... It's simple, unrestrained, unqualified. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the son, my son, whom I love. And I delight in him. He gives me good pleasure. Simply because he's my son. And I love him. As parents we would do well to imitate God the Father in this regard, wouldn't we? In our own fathering, mothering, to affirm our children in our love before they've done anything to show themselves worthy of it. And children, of which we all are, but especially those of us here who are children and not adults, can I encourage you in this? Most of the time, your parents... Not all the time, sadly, but most of the time, your parents do want to know your love, their love for you. And they try to express that as best they can. And as kids, sometimes we resist that. And as parents, we don't always do it well. Your parents will sometimes be late. They'll sometimes let you down. They won't get it right. We're, believe it or not, still learning. Your grandparents are still learning how to love well. So this is not an excuse for Sin and where things take place where it's definitely not loving. But under God, I trust that you will know that it is our desire as your parents to love you and for you to know that love and the love of God. But more important than even that, hearing your own parents' love. As we heard last week, and I want us to hear again this week, we heard it from Nat, I want you to hear it from me, I want you to hear it from God, these words that Jesus hears from his father at his baptism are words for us to hear today. We too can hear these words from God the Father. You are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. Because something is happening here to Jesus. Some people say this is his preparation for ministry. I go beyond that and say this is his ministry already happening here. Something is happening to Jesus as the as the spirit comes, and comes upon him and he's anointed for the ministry to come. But in his baptism and even in this temptation we're about to hear about Jesus is doing something for us as well. This is not just happening to Jesus, he is doing something for us here. Because in him and through him the Father takes us in his arms and says to us in Christ, "You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased." In him we receive the full rights of being sons and girls ladies I include you in that because it's the son in biblical days and in the scriptures who receive all the inheritance so don't be ashamed to be called a son of God I'm not ashamed to be part of the bride of Christ it's glorious And so in Christ, whatever we hear from our earthly parents or not, however well or not, we have been loved and they love us and express that love. We too can hear these words from the Father himself to us personally. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Unqualified, unrestrained, without condition. And it's with those words still ringing in his ears, maybe he's even still dripping from the waters of his baptism, that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, as we read in Matthew 4. As I said, some people see that all this, his baptism and his temptation as preparation for his ministry, and it is that, that Jesus is actually involved in ministry. He is serving us here even as he faces the temptation in the wilderness. A couple of weeks ago now, I spoke on the coming of John the Baptist, who prepared the way of the Lord. How did he do that? By preaching the kingdom of heaven was at hand and calling the people to repentance and baptism. And I trust that still rings in our minds and we were encouraged then and now to repent daily, to live lives of repentance and faith. Daily, turning away from sin and turning towards God in faith. But tell me, or don't tell me, think about it. Tell me later if you want. How good is your repentance? Can any of us say we repent fully, wholly, righteously before God without any wrong motive? I don't think we can. As fallen, sinful human beings, even our repentance is tainted. Luther knew that really well. Young Marty, the monk, never at rest in his conscience, constantly feared he hadn't confessed or repented enough of his sin, and then he remembered another sin, even before he'd gone home, he'd turn back and confess again, constantly fearing the wrath of God. Have I done enough? Have I, how can I ever be Righteous? before God. What about the sins I've forgotten? What about the sins I didn't do? Sorry, the sins of omission, the things I should have done that I didn't do. Oh, I've remembered that one. I've got to go back and do penance for that. He was in this constant battle and state of distress. Not just because he had a sensitive conscience. Because he had a guilty one. He didn't know where his justification came from. He wasn't secure neither in his salvation or his sonship. Same thing, really. Until he finally read and understood the truth behind that verse, the righteous shall live by faith. And it was so glorious. He says, it's like the gates of heaven opened up for me. Because God showed him it wasn't about him. It wasn't about how good his confession or his repentance was. It was all about the goodness of God and the grace of God and his son Jesus Christ. It was about his righteousness, not Luther's, not yours or mine. And in the same way, it's actually about Christ's repentance for us, not about how well we repent. Even our weak and wobbly repentance comes through Christ. Perfect repentance here and is made acceptable to the father which is why it's so wonderful that jesus who did not sin made john baptize him a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin to fulfill what all righteousness not for jesus sin he didn't have any not for jesus righteousness he was already righteous but for ours. even before his public ministry begins, so we think Jesus was ministering to us and serving us with a perfect repentance so that in our weak and wobbly, flimsy, faulty way, we can come before God and confess our sin and turn from it and turn to him. And that repentance, and we ourselves are accepted by God the Father. So that In Christ, by grace, through faith, we too can hear those words we long to hear. This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And in that, together with Christ, as he does here, we can stand secure in our sonship. We might find ourselves in a desert place, and we often think the wilderness is dry and barren, and it is, physically speaking. But actually the wilderness is a place where we meet with God and he provides so richly for his people. It's actually where our sonship is experienced and expressed most fully. Whilst for Israel, it is for Jesus. It is for us. Don't fear the wilderness times. Because we can be secure in our sonship in those dry and barren places because all the other props have been taken away. And we stand secure in our sonship, not after we've passed the test and resisted the temptation, but actually in the very face of it. And that actually helps us face the temptation and resist it, because we know whose we are already. And what we're going to find by the end of this morning, I trust, a little spoiler for us, is that even if we fail... In those times, if we give in to temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the lure of the world, I want us to know something. Your sonship is still secure. In Christ. Does that mean we can go on sinning? That it doesn't matter? Absolutely not. noito, Paul says in Romans 6. No way, says Ray, in choro baptist this morning (laughs) no way says christ himself neither do i condemn you he said to the woman but go and sin no more doesn't mean we can go on in that at all but what it does mean is one of the greatest gifts we have which god the father has given so freely and so fully and one of the greatest defenses we have against temptation and against the evil one is actually our security in our sonship in christ when we know who we are and whose we are, we can resist the devil and he will flee. He will question it. He will try to make us question it and doubt it. And that's where we can learn from Jesus here. I know that might sound like something of a long introduction, but it's not just introduction. It sets the scene and context we need to hear and understand what's taking place here as Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. And as we've heard, and as you might know, he's tempted three times, isn't he? Matthew calls him the tempter as the devil confronts Jesus. And the devil's even got some say as to where Jesus is coming and going from. He takes him, we're not told how, maybe an Uber, probably not a magic carpet. But the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple at one point, to the top of a very high mountain at another. Jesus goes, led by the Spirit. And each time, in different ways, with different words and different promises, each time we'll actually see that it's Jesus' sonship that is on the line here. One of the first things to note is how Satan tries to put Jesus off balance with the way he speaks to him. If you are the Son of God. A little accusative in that. If you are, Really? Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Satan's getting Jesus at his weak point here, isn't he? He's just spent 40 days and 40 nights without eating, fasting. He's hungry. He's weak. It'd be really nice to have a loaf of bread right now, wouldn't it? How often is it that Satan comes to us in our darkest moments, in our times of need, he comes and tempts us? And when we're on our own, when no one's watching. Hey, Jesus, you could do this. If you are the son of God, no one would know. Just a stone into a bread, who's going to care? A lot more at stake than that. And the devil puts it, a bit like he did in the garden, back with Adam and Eve, all those generations ago, hinting, suggesting, questioning the truth, really, of the word of God. Did God really say? Are you really the son of God? Prove it to me. Justify yourself. But Jesus doesn't take the bait, does he? He doesn't even respond, do you notice, to that part of the devil's taunt. If you are the son of God. Why? Why not? Because he's secure in his sonship. He has no doubt about it and therefore he doesn't need to prove it to anybody. How quickly we are undone when we feel we have to justify ourselves to other people, prove ourselves to them. How much more at ease might we be if we could know just how secure we are in our own sonship, in Christ, how accepted we are, rather than having to prove ourselves to others. And often putting them down in the process. In our relationship with God and with others. I reckon we could laugh at ourselves a lot more. Even when we don't do so well at school, at sport, even at preaching. If we knew just how justified and glorified and adopted we've been in Christ. I remember Derek Schiller once saying a justified person can laugh at themselves. I think he's right. When we know we're justified, our guilty consciences have been washed clean, that we're loved and accepted as children of God without qualification. When we know that our sins, all our failures, all our faults have been forgiven. Washed clean. We don't have to be so worried about what others think. We don't have to be so competitive, says he. We don't have to be so scared of making up. And chances are, in fact, if we know that, if we're secure in that like Jesus is here, I reckon we'll enjoy life all the more, we will laugh all the more, and we might even muck up a little less because we know we're secure. As I said, it's one of our greatest defences. It's not what we're waiting for one day when we've proven ourselves. It's who we are now in Christ. Yeah, front's where all the blessing is. You can come up the front. No one else is. Why not? Jesus doesn't try to defend who he is. He knows who he is. He knows whose he is and he's secure in that. The son of God with whom I'm well pleased. He doesn't feel inferior or insecure in any way. And so the accusation or the implication of Satan's words, they don't throw Jesus off balance at all. They're like water for ducks back. In fact, he responds with confidence and with utmost faith in God the father and he responds with the word of his father. And this is where I was helped with by Dominic Smart. When Jesus responds with, It is written, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's not saying, you know what, the devil, Satan, my morning devotions are enough. They'll get me by. It's not quite what he's saying. He does say to his disciples in John's gospel, after speaking with a woman at the well, Hungry, thirsty, long journey. The woman doesn't give him any drink. They've gone to get food. He hasn't had anything. But he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Just doing my father's will satisfies me. And that's actually part of what he's saying here. It's not so much just having a Bible verse to throw back at the evil one. It's saying... No, God's word says something. You're telling me one thing. I'm hearing your voice, your word, but this is what God tells me. And the only way I'm actually going to live, not just get some bread, the only way I'm going to live is by that word. Not just by reading it and knowing it, but living by it. Obeying my father's word. You know, we're often taught with this passage How Jesus uses the word of God. So when we face temptation, make sure you've got a scripture in mind and throw it back at the temptation. Voila, the devil leaves and the temptation's gone. It's not quite like that. Bible verses are not the magic word. Abracadabra, cannot live by bread alone. No temptation anymore. We'll see that in the next one because you know what? The devil actually uses a Bible verse right back at Jesus (laughs) to tempt him. Where the power comes is in the power of that living word and in the trust to say, God provides everything I need and I will listen to his word and I will obey it because in that is life. It's the word of God that feeds me. And by that word, I will live. I know my father will provide for me in good and right time. But more than that, it's more important for me to abide by my father's word than it is to take anybody else's. Even when I'm hungry, even when I'm needy, feeling like a little bit of selfish pleasure, my life will be better for it. I will live rather than die because of God's word. In fact, Satan, if I took up your challenge and tried to prove to you that I am the son of God by doing what you say, if I listen to you and take heed of your word, that wouldn't prove my sonship at all. What it would actually do is deny my sonship. It would put my sonship into jeopardy, not confirm it. You say to me, if you are the son of God, prove it by doing this or that. But in fact, it's precisely because I am the son of God that I cannot do what you are saying to do. And friends, the same is true for us. We don't resist temptation to become or to prove our sonship, our worthiness to be called God's children or to earn our salvation. We are to resist temptation, but we do it because we are children of God. The same is true for the second temptation. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down there on top of the temple, highest point. For it is written, here's Satan, using a Bible verse, he will command his angels concerning you. You can take anything out of context, can't you? Very suggestive again, the serpentine, if, if you are the son of God. To which Jesus responds, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, God's word is given to us not that so we, that we might test him with his word, but so that we might trust him and take him at his word. Not to test God according to his word, we're to trust his word. Again, if Jesus threw himself down here, he would be throwing his sonship away, not proving he's the son of God. And in the process, he would actually be throwing away our sonship and our salvation that's what's at stake here you see as the writer of hebrews tells us jesus was made like his brothers us he was human in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of god to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted And in chapter four, he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted. We've just sung about it, haven't we? As we are, he's been tempted in every respect, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. If Jesus fails here, no confidence for us, no throne of grace that we have access to. Can you see how this is far more than just preparation for Jesus' ministry? Oh, no. From the outset, his mission oh, no. is to seek and save the lost. Oh, no. Our salvation's at stake here. And nowhere oh, no. less so than in the third and final temptation, final one for now at least, oh, no. Oh, no. devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain, verse 8, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, just fall down and worship me. That's no small thing, That's a pretty big offer, isn't it? All the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. What an offer. And here I think we can learn how it is that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. He may not have had a mobile phone or the internet to be tempted with. He didn't have credit cards or football games to tempt him with the idols of sport and shopping and whatever else. How can we say he was tempted in every way? Just as we are. Well, at the root of all temptation, just as it was in the garden, as it is here for Jesus and as it is for us, at the root of it all, whose word are we going to listen to? And whose word are we going to live by? Whose word will we trust and obey? Are we content satisfied and secure with what God has said and what he has given? Or will we hear those words? Did God really say? The fruit looked good in the garden. Delightful, it was good for food. It was delicious and it could make you wise. It was desirable. Most temptations are like that, aren't they? Look good, feel good, taste good. god may have said don't do it it'd be harmful it wouldn't end well won't truly satisfy you might end in death even whether it's the fruit in the garden or the temptation here or the sexual immorality the holding of grudges or the greed that we are faced with in our own hearts and lives looks so good it would feel so good did god really say yes he did Does it really matter? Yes, it really does. Do I really have to live by the words that come from God? It's the only place you're going to find life. Receive life. Are we going to trust God and not test him? Are we going to receive from him what he's promised rather than trying to get and grasp for what is not yet ours? Because that's what the devil's offering Jesus here, a shortcut to glory. But actually, there's not going to be any glory if he takes this shortcut. There are no shortcuts to glory. It's only a path of suffering. And Jesus says, All these I will give you, as Satan said, if you fall down and worship. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. I've had enough with you. For it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Just to finish had psalm 2 read for us as well as the passage from matthew 4 this morning because when matthew's readers predominantly jewish would have heard this read to them and maybe even the people present at john's baptism jesus baptism with john if these words were heard by all this is my beloved son with whom i will there would have been light bulbs flashing in everyone's mind because they would know their old testament scriptures they would know psalm 2 and when they hear these words this is my son Like we read them and say, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. He's the son of God. We know that second person of the Trinity. They're not thinking that. They're thinking this is Psalm 2. This is a declaration of a king who's come before them. Preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a coronation psalm. This is the psalm that's read when a king is crowned. And it's actually read regularly after that, establishing, affirming his kingship year after year. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It wasn't just happening in Jesus' day or Israel's, it was happening in ours. If we can get rid of God, if we can get rid of the church and squash them, if we can get rid of all the laws and rules that God seems to put in place, we'll be free, we can burst burst their bonds apart, we can do it, come on. Still trying to kill the author of life. Trying to find freedom outside of the will of God. Trying to find life apart from every word that proceeds from his mouth. What does God do in response? He sits in heaven and he laughs, snorts, holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There is no turning back, there is no thwarting of God's plan, no matter how much they scheme and plot against him. He laughs at the thought of them even putting a dent in his plans. And then anointing uh, the anointed king himself speaks in the psalm, receiving and affirming his crown and his authority. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, to the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But the Lord said more to the son, to his king. He tells us what he said. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What has Satan just offered Jesus? Look at all the kingdoms of the... You can have it all in all their glory. <laughs> my father's already promised me that. Father's already promised me that. And look at the manner in which it's given. Just bow down and worship me. There's an if, there's a qualifier, there's a condition from Satan. But no, what does the son have to do? Just ask of me. And I'll give you the nations as your heritage. Just ask. This is my beloved son in whom I love, without qualification. No, if you do this, you'll get that in return. No, you're my son. I love you. I delight. Remember the prodigal father, the prodigal son? What does he say to his older brother? What do you mean I don't give you anything? You wanted a fattened calf? Everything I have is yours. And in the parable, he doesn't even have to ask, but he can't see it. Now, we can see here for Jesus, we say, yeah, but sure, Jesus is secure in his sonship. He is the son of God. (laughs) He's been affirmed by the father. He had this wonderful experience of theophany, spirit coming down upon him and hearing those words verbally. Of course, Jesus is secure in his sonship. He can then say, be gone, Satan. What you're promising me is empty compared to what the father has given me. But can we see, would we see that the same can be true for us? In fact, the same is true for us in Jesus Christ. In him, our repentance is accepted and received. In him, how we deal with temptation. At times, we've got to say, we don't deal with it well. We don't resist it, we fall into it. But in him, our failures and our sin wash clean, whiter than snow. His perfect righteousness that is not even started here, but expressed here in his temptation is ours he who knew no sin became sin for us that we would become the righteousness of god the righteousness he's living out here in the wilderness your sonship and mine can be that secure it is that secure because of what jesus has done for us would you know that would you receive that sort of grace That's what it is. Would we receive that assurance? Would we stand and walk and live by faith, secure like that in our sonship, knowing in our heart of hearts, because that's where he's written it, by the Spirit, those words, this is my beloved Son, in whom I delight. He delights over you. He sings over you. (laughs) And the Spirit... (laughs) testifies to our spirit that we are children of god romans 8 so that even when we're wrestling with it we can still be secure and assured in our sonship and that same spirit what has he done he's sealed our inheritance guaranteeing it let's pray Father, what love, what grace you've shown us, lavished upon us. Would you show us afresh the mighty and finished work of your Son? On the cross, yes, in his atoning death died for us, but even here, in his baptism, in his temptation, his righteous life lived for us. That he who knew no sin would become sin for us, that we might become the very righteousness of God, that we might receive full rights as sons, your sons, your daughters, your children. And Father, in that security, would you help us in our times of need, when we face trials and temptations and the taunt to the evil one? Would you secure us in our sonship? Because you and your Son and your Spirit have accepted us and secured us as yours. Help us not to forget. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.